Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Bobby Rydell, author of Teen Idol on the Rocks. Bobby Rydell, author of Teen Idol on the Rocks. How old were you when people started to notice that you could sing pretty well? Well, it goes back quite a few years, Brian. You know, when my dad was overseas, you know, I was born in 1942. So he went overseas, and uh, back in 1945, I was three years old. And uh, my mom and dad always used to write back to one another, you know. And my mom would write back, the baby's always singing, the baby's always singing. And I still have the letter today in my house that my dad wrote back to my mom. And he says, who knows, maybe one day we'll have a star in the family. And the only reason I'm in the business today is because of my dad. If I had any talent within me whatsoever, my dad was the first one to see it. They used to take me around the clubs and here in Philadelphia, you know, CR Club, 2-4 Club, BR Club, the RDA Club, Scioli's, you know, C. <laughs> and he would ask the club owner, is it okay if my son got up and sang a song and did some impersonations? And I would get up, seven, eight years old, and I would do my thing, and people would go like this. And i say, wow, all I have to do is do this and they do that? You know, what a wonderful feeling. So it's, it's really been <laughs> my entire life, you know. I never really had a job. <laughs> what kind of songs did you sing when you were seven and eight? Matter of fact, you know, I, I did a song called I'm Going to Live Till I Die. Could you believe that, Brian? <laughs> I'm going to live till I die. <laughs> seven, eight years old. And, and I did some impersonations. And uh, songs like uh, I was a big fan of Johnny Ray. My dad took me to the Earl Theater in Philadelphia, and it was a matinee performance in Johnny Ray. You know, walking my baby back home, the little white cloud that cried, you know. Uh, and I, I was a big fan. And he was like really, you know, one of the very, very first teen idols, Johnny Ray, you know. And I, I didn't, you know, when I was about seven, eight years old, I did, I did an impersonation of Johnny Ray, you know. When did you first get paid to sing? Well, I was 10 years old, and I was on a show here in Philly called the Paul Whiteman TV Teen Club. And it was an amateur show, amateur show that gave young, young talent a chance to get a break in the business. And years ago, Sammy Davis Jr. you know, had a record called Because of You, the old song, Because of You. There's... So one side he did actors doing singers, and one side he did singers doing actors. I, and uh, on the show, I did the side of actors doing singers, like Cagney, Bogart, you know, Jane, and so on and so forth, to the song of Because of You. Okay, and I won on the show, became a regular. Uh, I, I didn't get paid on the show. I won on the show. I, I, I got an RCA Victor Color television set. I was 10 years old, so that's 1952, right? And a lot of Tootsie Rolls. <laughs> that was the sponsor, you know. My first paying, I guess, when I first started recording back in 1959 for Cameo Records, which was right here in Philadelphia. 
You grew up in Philly? I born and raised in South Philadelphia, 11th and Moya Mensing, yeah. Is the house still there? The house is still there, yeah, yeah. Matter of fact, uh, 11th and Moya Mensing now is Bobby Rydell Boulevard. Isn't that wonderful? It goes from the 2400 block to the 2500 block. And in the 2500 block was Fabian. Fabian Forte, you know. My real name is Riderelli, <laughs> okay? And, and on 9th Street was Frankie Avalon. It's amazing how many, you know. Did you know each other growing up? Oh, yeah. Uh, for, well, I didn't know Fabe, you know, although he lived a half a block for, uh, away from me. You know, in South Philadelphia, like every corner had a different hang, you know. And, you know, Fabe was uh, a half a block away from me, and, you know, I was on 11th and Moy Mensing, and we had our own set of, you know, guys and girls, you know, go to the soda shop, Wurlitzer, so on and so forth. Uh, Frankie and I go back, I guess I was about 10 years old. And Frankie played trumpet at the time, and I played drums, and I sang, and I did impersonations. And I've, I've known Frankie since I was 10 years old. I think Frank at that time was 45. <laughs> <laughs> you still perform with them now? Yeah. We, we, we started a show, Brian, back in 1985 called The Golden Boys. And it was three Italian guys from South Philadelphia, Fabian Forte, Frankie Avalone, and Robert Riderelli, Bobby Rydell, and it was so successful. And I, I, I turn, I, I call Frankie Cheech, you know, in Italian, Frank is Cheech. I said, how long is this going to last? A year, two years, tops. 2016, we're still doing the show, and it's bigger than ever. When did you change your name from Riderelli to Rydell? Actually, we never changed the name. You it was know, legally I, still? Legally, it's still Robert Louis Riderelli. You know, but my dad came up with Bobby Rydell. Because the nuns in school, I used to go to the Epiphany on 11th and Jackson. That was my grammar school. And the nuns used to call me Master Riderelli, Master Rydelli. And my dad came up with Rydell when I was like seven, eight years old. Were any of your relatives appalled that you would change the family no, name? No, well, the family name was never changed. It's always been Riderelli. Yeah. What kind of student were you? Bad. <laughs> Were you a troublemaker? Nah, not, not a troublemaker, but I, I, I really, you know, I wasn't a great student. I didn't want to study. You know, I, I really enjoyed, you know, when, getting back to when I was five years old and seeing Johnny Ray at the Earl Theater. My dad took me to see, when I was five, six years old, because my dad loved big bands. And I was introduced to big bands at a very early age. He took me to see Benny Goodman. And playing drums for Benny Goodman was a guy by the name of Gene Krupa. I said, I don't know who he is, Daddy, but I want to be him. I want to be that guy playing drums. And I started playing drums when I was five, six years old. Did you have a teacher for drums? I had a teacher in South Philadelphia on 15th and Wharton. God rest his soul. His name was Sam D'Amico. And I studied with him for about two and a half years. He said, Bobby, I can't teach anymore. If you want to go any further, you have to go to New York City and study with a guy by the name of Samuelano, who wrote a lot of drum books, Rudy Bops, Bass Bops, and all kinds of stuff. And I, I said, Sam, I said, I just want to play, man. <laughs> I just want to, you know, put the sticks in my hand, play some time, you know. And uh, 
I, I love the instrument. I absolutely love the instrument. And, you know, matter of fact, if I'm on the road and, you know, people recognize me if I'm like, you know, and there's a trio playing, you know, Bobby, come up and sing. Oh, no, man. I want to sit in. You still play the drums? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Were you ever in a band as the drummer? Uh, we had a, bla a band, excuse me, in uh, South Philadelphia called the Skylarks. And uh, the leader of the band was a guy by the name of Tony Karanji. He was a tenor player and a guy by the name of Buddy Safone on trombone. And I played drums. And we used to do, like, you know, hops, weddings, you know. Uh, remember, uh, what was it called when the bride used to... The night before uh, they, uh, the bride would get married and you would go out. I forget exactly what they called them, but we would go out and do like, I love you truly, truly dear. You let me call you sweetheart. You know, I forget what that was called exactly, but it was right, you know, right outside the you house. You serenade them. Exactly. That's what it was called. Uh. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> A serenade. Right. Well, <laughs> what did you do for fun in your, in your spare time as a kid? Play ball. You know, you know, back then, you know, in South Philadelphia, you know, we didn't have the kind of money where we could buy a football, a bat, a glove, you know, so we made up our games. Our games were buck buck, you know, block ball, stick ball, half ball. Half ball was the greatest game in the world. You know, you get the broomstick, you know, your mother's broomstick, you cut it off, and you had the broomstick, you know. The, the, the straw was, you know, somewhere in the backyard. And then we would get what we call pimple balls, right? And they were about, I don't know, five, ten cents. We cut them in half. And they had diamonds on them, you know. And they were white and had diamonds. And it was one of the greatest games in the world because you didn't have to run. Yeah. Across the street was a single. You hit the first window, was a double. Third window was a triple. Over the roof was a home run. And but I mean, used to pitch these balls. Used to call them like butterflies, you know. And uh, I mean, the ball would come. It was half a ball. It, it was just a half mm -hmm. a ball. Yeah, floaters, so on and so forth. It was one of the greatest games in the world. Were you a sports fan? Love sports, absolutely, Brian. Yeah, yeah. My dad took me. I don't if you if you remember when the athletics were here in Philadelphia, and Bobby Chance was the pitcher for the athletics, and they had a shortstop by the name of Eddie Juiced. And my dad took, I think I was five, six years old, because my dad was an athletic fan. He wasn't really a Philadelphia Phillies fan. He loved the A's, you know, the American League uh, ball club. And I, I, I can remember, to this day, Brian, I can remember saying, Eddie, hit it over the wall. Eddie, hit it. Eddie Juiced, and he hit a home run. I thought he did it for me. You know, <laughs> but I've been a season ticket holder for the Birds since 1963. I was a season ticket holder for the Flyers, and uh, I'm a big sports fan. You know, uh, what has kept you in Philadelphia all these years? I I could never move out to the West Coast, Brian. You know, uh, once again, Frankie Avalon, who's a very dear friend, he said, Bobby. Why don't you move out to the West Coast? We can play golf every day. And I would say, Frank, by the time I move out to the West Coast, Montana is going to be oceanfront property. <laughs> I said, I don't know how you people live out here with the, you know, the fires, the mudslides, the earthquakes, so on and so forth. And Frankie, being from South Philadelphia, he said, Yeah, Bob, what about back home in the winter time? It gets cold. I said, I can always turn up the thermostat, you know, but. Uh, and, and, and to be born and raised in South Philadelphia was so special, 
You know, it, it, you know it, there's an old saying, you could take the kid out of South Philadelphia, but you could never take the South Philadelphia out of the kid. And South Philadelphia is still, you know. How long yeah. did you live in that same house in South Philly? We moved, uh, when I say we, my mom, my dad, and my mom's parents, my grandparents, we moved down to South Philadelphia in 1963 to the main line, an area called Penn Valley. And uh, I was in London doing a tour in, in London, and my mom and my dad and my mom's parents moved in the day Kennedy was assassinated, November 23rd, 1963. And I was in London when they moved into the house. And did, did you keep in touch as your career took off? Did you keep in touch with all your school friends, or did you kind of lose touch with them? Uh, a, my next-door neighbor was a kid by the name of Lucy Osi. He's a barber by trade, but loved to play trumpet. He's a damn good trumpet player, too, a yeah, jazz trumpet player. And he has a band that works at uh, a place called the Clef Club. It's right off of Broad Street on Fitzwater. You know? Today? Yeah, to, to this day. And uh, he called me at one time. Uh, he said, Bob, would you come in, you know, with the band? And, and the band was like an 18-piece band. You had like four trumpets, four bones, five reeds, piano, bass, drums, guitars, so on and so forth, to play. I said, Lou, I said, you know, my eyeballs aren't that good anymore as far as reading. You know, I haven't read in years. He said, we don't care about reading. We just want time. I said, I'll give you time. Time I got because one of my favorite players back then was a guy by the name of Mel Lewis. Played with the uh, the uh, Thad Jones Big Ben, and they used to play the Village Vanguard, you know, in New York City, and they called him Mel the Taylor Lewis because if it was here, that's where it stayed, never moved from here, you know. So I said, if you want time, man, I'll give you time. But the great thing about it was there were charts, and I'm a left-handed drummer, so. You know, the chart, you know, the music stand and the charts were over here. You know, you play this way. And I started, you know, I said, oh, yeah, man, quarter, you know, uh, quarter note triplets, you know, full notes. You know, I started playing, and it all came back. It all came back to when I was like, you know, 13, 14, when I studied with Sam D'Amico. Yeah. Did you ever take voice lessons to learn oh, how yeah. to kind of <clears throat> read? Absolutely. Right? There was a vocal uh, uh, coach here in Philadelphia. And I studied with him. I guess I was about 10, 11 years old. And then he said, his name was Artie Singer, a famous vocal coach here in Philadelphia, since passed away quite a few years ago. And he told my dad, he said, got to stop because he's going to go through a vocal change. And if you sing through the vocal change, it possibly can, you know, hurt, hurt your chords. So I stopped. And then when I turned about, you know, 15, 16, I started taking vocal lessons again. And I, I can remember the first time I worked at Copacabana in New York City. I think I was uh, 19 years Matter of fact, I was the youngest guy to ever work the Copa. I was 19 years old. And uh, the Copa had like two shows a night, three on the weekends. Monday night was dark. And I lost it. You know, I did, you know, there... It was like this, and I met a guy by the name of Marty Lawrence in New York City, and he became like, you know, God. And I went there in the afternoon, and he started, and he said, okay, Bobby, let's do some scales. I said, scales? I can't even talk. And he started with things like, on the felice, on the felice. 
that guy got me singing like you know in two hours. You know, yeah. So you know, yeah, I, I, I've studied quite a bit as far as you know vocal lessons. Remember the first time you heard one of your recordings on the radio? Yes, I do. Yeah, uh, my manager at that time was a man by the name of Frankie Day. His real name, Francesco Cocchi. And he was a bass player in a band called Billy Duke and the Dukes. And he used to work at a place called Bay Shores in Summers Point, New Jersey. And we're driving to New York on the Jersey Turnpike and we're getting into the area where we can hear WABC radio. And all of a sudden we hear, here's a new kid, you know, with a brand new record. Here's Bobby Rydell with Kissin' Time, but on bomb dum dum I said, wow. That was, you know, wow. What a, you know, great feeling, man, you know. Was there I was 17, you know. Was, was there a time you, you looked at yourself in the mirror and said, hey, you're a star? Never. No? No, no, you know. Uh, you know the great thing about it, Brian, is that when my if I like I said if if I had any talent, my dad was the first one to see it. So he would take me around to all of these clubs in Philadelphia. So, more or less, those clubs at a very very early age became my vaudeville. Absolutely became my vaudeville, and positioned me and you know. Uh, how to learn, you know, from a very, very early age. And then, you know, late, later on in my career, I was lucky enough to work with people like, you know, Jack Benny, George Burns, Red Skelton, Danny Thomas, Milton Berle. And you could do nothing but learn from these people. But the stepping stone was that early club dates becoming vaudeville. Were you ever starstruck? Were you just thought, oh, wow, here I am with Jack you, Benny or something uh, like that? Well, sure. My, I mean, my first appearance in Las Vegas at the Sahara Hotel was two weeks. I was 1920 with George Burns. And, you know, he would do his thing. He would call me out. And I would do like, oh, maybe 20 minutes. And then at the end of my 20 minutes, Mr. Burns would come out again. And then we'd do a soft, show, a soft shoe with a derby and a cane to the song of Some of These Days. And he would sing it like, you know, some of these days, 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 you're gonna miss me. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing W.C. Fields, I don't know why. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then I would do it like, like a Darren. Some of these days, you're gonna miss me, baby. And then we do a soft shoot together, you know. And the, you know, him being, at that time, I was, what, 20, he had to be, 50, you know, something like that. And people just, you know, loved it, you know. When you were a teen idol, how much time would you spend on your hair? That's when I had hair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we used to have a thing called, what was it, hairspray? Uh, Aquanet or something like this. You know, I had a big pompadour. And you would put this, psh, and you could walk through a wind tunnel, Brian. You know, it would not move. <laughs> Did so you, I spent a lot of time. Did on you my, figure out yourself how you wanted it to look? I, well, I always had like a you know a big pompadour, you know, and it was a lot of hair to handle, you know. But you know, uh, and it would always be like way up here, you know, comb it over, you know, to this side, you know, and then put the hairspray on it. So it would be that way all the time, you know. It, and then you know later on in the years, you know, the hair, you know, kind of. The only guy who still has his hair is Frankie Avalon. 
<laughs> what was your first car? First car was a Pontiac. Uh, and it was, uh, I'm trying to remember the color. It was like um, uh, coral. It was a coral color. And it was a Pontiac Bonneville. It was a great car. I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I think I was about 19. Were you making pretty good money at the time? Hey, yeah, back then, you know, of course, every, everything is relative. You know, yeah, the money back then was absolutely, you know, tremendous. You know, to the point where, you know, moving out of South Philadelphia and moving up to the main line, you know, uh, yeah, money, you know, once again, it's all relative. You know? How did you handle that? Because you're here, you're just a kid, a teenager, yeah. and suddenly you're making a lot of money. Were you making more money than your dad? Oh, absolutely. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Matter of fact, I took my dad out of work uh, back in 1960. He worked uh, a punch press for a thing called the Electronite Carbon Company. And, uh, you know, when, it, when I became successful and I started making, you know, some good bucks, I took my dad out of work and he started traveling with me. And my dad traveled with me to Australia, to Hong Kong, Japan, you know, and it was great. Well, once again, like I... I'm I'm sorry to be you know so you know. Uh, he's the guy who started me. My dad started me. Did he have any musical ability? He was the guy you know back in the you know 30s. You know he would wear like a, uh, what do you call it the bear, you know, like a like a a coat you know and he'd have a ukulele you know and he, because he, he he loved the girls you know he'd play ukulele. In, in your book here, you write about your relationship with your mom. And was, yeah. was that tough to do? <clears throat> Absolutely, Brian. I mean, there's a couple of things in the book that were very hard to write. Number one being my, my first wife, Camille. She died of cancer in uh, 2003, breast cancer. And uh, we were married for 36 years. And my mom, my mom, uh, everybody, you know, thought my mom was, you know, really a great person. But behind closed doors, my mom was evil. And, you know, I was born in 1942. Back then, they didn't know anything about bipolar. And my mom was. Uh, my mom was bipolar. And she was evil. I mean, to the point where when I got married and Camille and I had children, my daughter uh, was in a show called Oliver. And she had, you know, the title song. And she was wonderful, Brian. She was absolutely wonderful. I was, you know, wow been crying, you know. And we go home. We go home. My mom, my dad, my grandparents, and my daughter comes in. She was like 10 years old. She said, I sing just like my daddy. And my mother said, you'll never be what your father was. Your father was making money when he was. This is a grandmother talking to a grandchild who was 10 years old. Once again, that you know, that was, a t but writing the book, I wanted to be brutally honest, you know, Brian, and, you know, like you just said, there were a couple of things in the book that were hard to talk about. My wife, Camille, and my mom. But it had to be truthful. And, you know, <clears throat> since the book has been out, since I think we released it uh, early part of May, middle part of May, the thing that I really love about it is that, you know, people who have bought the book and when we do book signings, they say it's almost like you're in the living room and you're talking to me one-on-one, -on -one, you know, 
it's like, you know, back home in South Philadelphia in the living room. And I'm so happy about that because that's the way I wanted the book to come off. You know, very truthful, brutally honest, and the guy who could be your next door neighbor, you know. And it, uh, it came out that way. How much of your time would you spend on the road when you were a teenager and you were playing the Copacabana and playing Las Vegas? How much time were you home and how much time were you? I was away a lot, you know. And, you know, my wife, Camille, my first wife, you know, she, she was the one who raised the children. I was the guy out on the road making the groceries, you know, coming home and giving the paycheck, you know, putting the kids through school, this, that, the other thing. And uh, so I was, I was on the road. I would say back then, eight, nine months out of the year. Not, you know, you know, you go out for two weeks, you come home for a week, you go out for three weeks, you come home for a couple of three days, and then you're back out on the road again. It's tough. You <clears throat> dropped out of high school uh, yeah. junior year? Yeah. I didn't even finish my junior year. I was Bishop Newman High School, 26th and more Tasker. Uh, which originally was called South Catholic, and, and that was originally on Seth, uh, 7th and Christian in South Philadelphia, became Bishop Newman. And, uh, I, you know, I started to become successful at 17 years old, and I, I flew to Coop. You know, I, I left in halfway through my junior year. And I remember one priest, it was a real nice guy, his name was Father Pellini. He, he said, Bobby, would you come back and do a benefit, you know, for the school? I said, it'd be my pleasure, Father. He said, how much money would you want? I said, I don't want anything. I want my diploma and my graduation <laughs> ring. And I got it. I got it, Brian. <laughs> so, uh, so what was it like being a, a teenager and suddenly you're out there and on stage in front of big audiences and you're a star? I mean, how did you, did it change you? Not really, no. I'm like when I say going back, when my mom said, "Yeah, the baby's always singing, three years old." I mean, this is all I've uh, I've ever known. I I never really had a job, you know. I, I I started singing at a very very early age. My dad took me around at a very early age, and it never never really Brian affected me. And I remember Bernie Lowe who was the president of the label that I recorded for, had all my hits called Cameo, which later became Cameo Parkway. And it, it, when I was 17, 18 years old, he said, you know, I had a couple of two, three hit records at the time, you know, riding high on the charts. And he said, uh, I want you to remember something, Bobby. He says, you're going to meet the same people going up the ladder as you do coming down. And if he happened to be a creep while you're up there, and if you start to slide, and give you a kick to get down there a little bit quicker. It's always better to be the nice guy, you know. And, and I pride myself on that, Brian. You know. Well, tell me about Cameo Records and what was the recording process like then? Two track. <laughs> Would you sing it through once, or did they have overdubs or anything like that? You you could do overdubs at that particular time. Uh, my first hit record was a song called Kissin' Time. And Cameo Parkway Records was a 1405 Locust Street on the 14th floor. I think on the bottom of the floor was Sunray Drugs, or whatever. And uh, there was a group in Wildwood, New Jersey, used to work the Rainbow in Wildwood, New Jersey, called Georgie Young and the Rockin' Box. And Georgie Young was a marvelous sax player. I mean, he played alto, tenor, baritone, you know, uh, soprano, flute, clarinet. He was a marvelous player. 
and his band, you know, at the Rainbow was like, you know, at that time, like everything was like a hard shuffle. Ding, 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 ding. And, you know, he used to come off the street. And I was only like 12, 13 years old. I used to stand out the Rainbow and listen to Georgia Young. And he was the first guy, uh, his, his band recorded Kissin' Time. And that was up, the studio was a two by four, <clears throat> two track recording, you know. It was one, yeah, it was great. Now, you, you were on a, a Dick Clark uh, Cavalcade. Caravan of Stars. Caravan, and when you were on that, how many songs would you sing in a show? Oh, well, at my very first, uh, uh, that was like about four to six weeks tour. You do a different city every night, and you travel on a bus. Coasters, the Drifters, uh, Clyde McFadder, uh, the Skyliners, Lloyd Price, Paul Anka. You know, and I was brand new at the time, so I only had two songs. I had Kissin' Time, and my second record was a song called We Got Love. And I go on, of course, early in the show, get off, and then I'd watch everybody else. And, you know, Lloyd Price had a great band back then. And, and the band backed up everybody on the show. You know, it's really, uh, and I became very friendly with Lloyd Price. You know, to this day, we're still very, dear, you know, dear friends. But you, you went from there to playing at the Copacabana where yeah. you were the whole show for the whole evening, right? Yes. So you had to do jokes and... Well, you know, I, like I said earlier, you know, do impersonations. And I had two wonderful people, a guy by the name of Lou Spencer, who staged my act, and a guy by the name of Noel Sherman, who wrote all of the special material. And we encompassed all of my hit records with a, with a piece of material called, <clears throat> excuse me, they don't write them like that anymore. They don't write them like that anymore. Songs that give you that thrill of nostalgia, or is it neuralgia? Yeah, and uh, it was a wonderful act. And I mean, we, you know, we woodshedded, you know, for, we went to uh, Pittsburgh, the Holiday House. We went to uh, Syracuse, the Three Rivers Inn, to fine tune the act before we got to New York City, you know, at the Copacabana. And, you know, Lou Spencer was wonderful. He was originally a dancer and a, and a dance group called the Dunhills. And they used to open for, uh, for Danny Kaye. Okay. And they were four guys who were marvelous dancers. And uh, we do, say we do the show at the Three Rivers Inn in Syracuse. And then after the show, you know, back up into the room to critique everything. And he would have a roll of toilet paper. And he would take off like one sheet of toilet paper. He said, this is everything you did right. And then he'd roll the toilet paper and say, this is everything you did wrong. And we'd have to woodshed and get everything fine-tuned for the Copa. And you said also in your book that you used to play the steel pier and do was it five to ten shows a day sometimes? I, I think five was the minimum. But you could do anywhere from, you know, five to ten shows a day. And George Hammond, who was the owner of Steel Pier, a great man. And he used to love when it rained because, you know, everybody would, couldn't go on the beach. You know, everybody come in, watch a movie. And, you know, they'd have a movie and then the act would go on. And really, Brian, I can remember, you know, there were no movies. You know, you go on, you finish, and then you hear, 15 minutes. And by the time you, you know, sign autographs, you know, in between shows for, you know, all of the fans, you'd be back on stage again. I, I, I think I did like 10 shows in one day. 
It was gruesome. It was, you, but it was it was great. You yeah. were or are a cigarette smoker. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm not proud of it, but you can to this day. Do that and not mess up your voice. <clears throat> Once again, talking about Avalon, you know. Uh, Frankie Avalon. Yeah, Frankie mm -hmm. Avalon. Yeah, and he would say Bobby. Being Italian, Bobby. <laughs> when are you going to stop smoking? And then there was like a pregnant pause. He says. Now you better not, because it'll screw up your voice. <laughs> and, you know, I'm the level, like I said, Brian, I'm not proud of it, but I started smoking at 10 years old. In South Philadelphia, you had to smoke, or else you got uh, beat up a lot. <laughs> How old were you when you were in uh, Bye Bye Birdie? I was, uh, I was 21. How did Matter you land that? I'm sorry? How did you land that? I, uh, I screen tested uh, with Anne Margaret and the director, his name was George Sidney. And you know, a screen test, you look into the camera, they want to see what kind of personality, uh, personality you have, talk about you know, how you grew up, so on and so forth, read a couple of lines from the script, and then maybe sing you know, a couple of lyrics. And Anne and I, we read you know, a couple of lines and Anne would sing, one boy, one special, one girl, one special girl. Okay, boom, 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 you know. And two weeks later, I'm back home in Philadelphia, in South Philly, and my manager, Frankie Day, says, you landed the part of Hugo Peabody. And, uh, wow, you know. And, you know, I saw the show on Broadway. <clears throat> Excuse me, on the show on Broadway, I mean, Hugo Peabody had nothing. No lines, he didn't sing, he didn't dance, he, did, he was like a nerd. But I think Mr. Sidney uh, saw something between Anne Margaret and myself that each day I went back to, you know, the set, Columbia, you know, in uh, Los Angeles, the script would be, you know, would get bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where there was more dialogue, uh, there was more singing, there was more dancing. And, uh, you know, Anne and I to this day, Anne and Margaret and I to this day are still very, very dear friends. And uh, I sent Anne the book. And Anne has a blurb in the book as well. Because I called Anne, I said, you know, would you write something, you know, whatever you want to write on, you know, you just write a little blurb. And I was in Florida, and I was in the shower, and my cell phone rang. I got out of the shower, and I see there's, you know, a voicemail. And I, I, I hit the button, you know, on the phone, and says, that's not your real name. Your real name is Ridarelli, or Hugo. Bobby, I can't believe what you went through. God bless you. You know, all the problems that I've had, you know, health-wise. And she said, you have my number. Please give me a call. So I'm leaving. Uh, my drummer and I were at the Orlando Airport in Florida. This is, you know, not really all that long ago, two, three months ago. And I called Anne. We had a marvelous conversation, Brian. And at the end of the conversation, I said, Anne, I was 21. You were 22. Why didn't get married? Why didn't we get married? <laughs> she's laughing. But she's a wonderful, wonderful lady. She really is. What was it like making a movie? Hurry up and wait. <laughs> it was like, you know, I was in the service at Fort Dix, New Jersey back in 1964. Because you could be in makeup, you know, at 5, 30, 6 o'clock in the morning, and they never get to you. 
because of the lighting, script, you know, where they want to go, you know, what's the most convenient, should we do this, you know, page 233 or page 16, you know, whatever. But it was my first movie, and, it was, and to work with, you know, I worked Dick Van Dyke, Janet Lee, Paul Lynn, Maureen Stapleton, and Anne Margaret, you know, wow. But that did not lead to a whole career in movies. No, uh, you know, I, I was never, like I said earlier, I was never a West Coast guy, you know, and uh, so I always wanted to stay on the East Coast. I'm an East Coast guy. I'm a big sports fan, you know, like we talked about earlier. I'm Eagles, Flyers, Sixers, you know, and I could never make the move. I could never make the move out to the West Coast. So maybe that's... Maybe that's uh, something that, you know, I look back on and say, eh, kind of stupid. You, you do know. say in the uh, book that you had a role on the TV show Combat. Yeah. Uh, I did that with uh, Vic Morrow, and the show was called The Duel. And it was Vic Morrow, myself, and a German tank, and I was caught under the truck for the whole half hour of the show. And there was a guy there who was the casting director. His name was Lynn Stallmaster who cast me in combat, and he threw me a script. He said, Bobby, I want you to read this. He said, you read it, you know, you know, woodshed on it, and then, you know, I'll see you in a couple of days, and we'll go over it. The script was The Graduate. And, uh, and I read for Lynn Stallmaster. Lynn Stallmaster went back to Mike Nichols, who was the director of The Graduate. He said, Bobby Rydell just gave me one hell of a reading. And Mike Nichols, from what, you know, Lynn Stallmaster told me, he said, well, yeah, but no, he's not what I'm looking for. And Dustin Hoffman, you know, got the part. But at least I read for it, you know. <laughs> I have to ask you about Frankie Day, because that's a name that comes up early in your book. Yeah. And you start off and saying well, he was your manager and he knew nothing about managing, and yet he was your manager. Talk about him. Going back, this is, what, 50 for Frankie Avalon, once again, calls me, and they were working at a place called Bay Shores in Summers Point, New Jersey. Frankie was in a band called uh, uh, Rocco and the Saints. Frankie was playing trumpet. It's way before either of us, you know, started recording. The drummer, his name was Chippy Brancata. We called him Chippy Peters. He got sick, and Frankie knew I played. You know, I played drums. He said, well, come in, fill in. You know, you know, just, you know, one night, you know, four or five sets, you know, 40 minutes, 40 on, 20 off, you know. And Frankie Day was playing bass. They were the lead group with Billy Duke and the Dukes. So I got up, I sang, I did some impersonations, I played drums. After the set was over, Frankie Day comes up to me and he says, uh, I'd like to manage you. I'm like 14. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. Talk to my father. And from that day on, Brian, we, we shook hands, and um, he took me around to RCA, MGM, Capitol, you know, so it's all turned downs. And I was really happy playing drums. You know, I was really, really happy playing drums. And then we went to Cameo. I recorded three songs for Cameo. They all bombed. They did nothing. I said, this is really not for me. And then the summer of 59, Kissin' Time came out, and that was my first hit record. So he was your manager when you were a, a, an unknown. Oh, absolutely. 
but he was still your manager when you were at the top of your career. Oh, yeah. You didn't at I, some point think, I've outgrown him. I need to go up the next level. No, no, no. He was like a father, you know, and he treated me like a son as well. And I think we were together for close to 15 years, you know. And then he moved. He, he moved to Hawaii. He loved Hawaii. And uh, when he moved, he was, you know, miles and miles away. He's in Hawaii. I'm in Philadelphia. And we, we parted, put on, you know, good terms. You know, he knew that, you know, uh, it was time for me to make a move. It was time for him to do something else as well. Do you remember some show you put on that you just felt like, this is it, everything is clicking, this is just the show? Not too very long ago, uh, I was at the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City. And uh, not only did I do, you know, my hits, but we did a lot of tunes from the American Songbook. And uh, Michael Pettison Jr. Uh, was the contractor of the band. He's a marvelous tenor player. And we had 17 pieces. We had three trumpets, three bones, five reeds, piano, bass, drums, rhythm, guitar, percussion, three girl singers, you know. And the show from Downbeat, you know, was like, wow, you know. And I opened up with uh, You in the Night and the Music, and it was it was Frank's chart. It was the old man's chart, uh, the old, uh, Sinatra's chart. Ba, da, da, ba, and that was my opener. You and the night and the music. And we did, you know, those type of tunes. And I, I, I had something in the book uh, uh, for quite a few years. Uh, one of my favorite albums of uh, Mr. Sinatra was Only the Lonely. And uh, we do three songs from that, Angel Eyes, What's New, and One for the Road. And it's a marvelous arrangement. So it get, you know, at, you know, I'm 74 years old right now. Always loved those tunes. But at 22, 23, you can't sing Willow Weep for Me. <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? <laughs> what do you know about Willow Weep for Me? But at this point in my career, what I've been through, you know, with the loss of my wife, you know, with my mom, you know, with my surgery, you know, um, I lived quite an interesting life. When you sat down to write the book, how'd you do it? How'd you reconstruct it all? Alan Slutsky, who I've known for God knows how many years, a marvelous musician, and uh, he wrote uh, a book called Standing in the Shadows of Motown, which was about the Funk Brothers. It became a, you know, movie. Uh, Alan's a Grammy Award winner. He got marvelous reviews in um, uh, Rolling Stone magazine. And back when I was 22, 23, 24, you know, we, after a show you sit down, you talk to people like we're talking right now, Brian, right? And you say, Bobby, you have so many great stories. Why don't you write a book? Who the hell wants to read a book about me? I'm 22, 23 years old. And then my wife, my new wife, Linda, she said, why don't you seriously think about it? And Alan and I got together. Now it's the better part of two years that we just, he came over to the house, you know, tape recorder, pad, pencil, and he just said, talk. And he wrote everything down. And like I said earlier, you know, um, that's the way the book came out. It came from here, it came from the heart, very truthful and brutally honest, very, very honest. You mentioned a little earlier about health problems. Can you talk about those? Yeah, yeah, about yeah. Well, you know, when my first wife passed away, uh, we were married for 36 years. Her name was Camille Carmela Quattrone. She went to St. Maria Goretti High School. She How old was, were you when you met? 
I was, we, I was 15, she was 14. And we kept company for 10 years because I was a teenage idol. You couldn't have a girlfriend because every, you know, girl out there who were fans thinking, oh, maybe, you know, I'll get the chance to date or marry Bobby Rydell or Frankie Avalon or, you know, so on and so forth. So she was always like, this is my cousin and nephew of the family. Uh, say hello to Camille. So we got married uh, October the 5th of 1968. And once again, married for 36 years and she passed away in 2003 via breast cancer. And I'll tell you, Brian, you know, uh, there was such a void in my life. I mean, there was nobody to lay in bed with, nobody to talk to, nobody to smile with, nobody to laugh with, nobody to tell your stories to, you know. And when she went, when she passed, then I can remember she was in Lankanaw Hospital and, you know, tubes, you know. And doctor said, uh, you want to put her on life support? I said, why? Please, just let her go. Let her go. And when she went, Brian, I, uh, I turned to alcohol. I mean, Camille and I used to go out and, you know, social drinking, have a little cocktail, you know, before dinner, maybe something after dinner, a little aperitif, you know, so on and so forth. But when she passed away, I, I became an alcoholic. I mean, to the point where I would hide, you know, uh, bottles of vodka in my golf bag in the back of the trunk of my car. God forbid the bottle was, you know, here I had to go to the liquor store because oh, I can't run out of my friend. And uh, the liver is a wonderful thing. It could take a hell of a lot. But after drinking for so many years, the liver said, I'm done with you. And that was, um, I started getting sick I remember going to a doctor at Lankanaw, gastro doctor, and he said to me, Bobby, he said, if you don't stop drinking, he said, you're going to be dead in two years. I said, hey, well, let me have a good time then. If I'm going to, if I'm, if I'm going to flew to Coop, let me go out swinging. He was right on the money. 2010, I had a double transplant. July 9th of 2012 at Jefferson Hospital, a new liver and a new kidney. And that's what now, four going on to five years, and I feel absolutely wonderful. You had a bypass in there, too. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, that was about maybe uh, 13 months later, 12, 13 months later, I, I go to Jefferson, and Doc says, uh, you got one artery is 85%, the other one's 95%, which was the Widowmaker. And I was feeling good, Brian. I said, well, I have to go to Biloxi. I, I, this was on a Wednesday, and I was leaving for Biloxi with Frankie and Fabian to do a show at one of the casinos in Biloxi. I said, I'm leaving. He said, you're not going to Biloxi. You're checking in right now. And I got a double bypass. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the way things happen, Brian, I mean... Uh, the young lady who was my donor, she was only 21 years old. Her name Julia from Reading, Pennsylvania. And my wife, who was a nurse for 36 years, she kind of knew, you know, that things weren't looking. I, I was really, really sick for two years. You know, you get the stomach comes out like this, a thing called ascites. And uh, July the 8th of 2012, we're laying in bed. I said, 
you better get everything together, you know, papers, this, that, the other. I said, because I ain't going to make it. Hmm. Oh, no, no, no. Hey. But she knew. And she said, you know, if you're ever going to get a liver, if, you know, it's going to be around the 4th of July weekend. Because a lot of accidents, DUIs, hit and runs. And Julia, God rest her soul, 21 years old, was hit by a car. And I'm O positive, which means I can give to anybody here in this room, but I can only take O positive. She was O positive. And I split the liver with a little girl here in Philadelphia. Her name is Saya. She was the primary recipient. She was only four years old. And she got 25% of uh, uh, Julia's liver, and I got the other 75%. And of course, the liver is the only you know, organ in the body that regenerates, it grows. You know? So she has a full liver now. She's eight years old now, Asaya, and I have a full liver. And I remember uh, one of the doctors at Jefferson, his name was Dr. Ramirez. I said, you know what, Doc? I said, I didn't know that I wasn't the primary recipient. He said, Bobby, he said, you aren't even the secondary. I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, there were 14 people in front of you waiting for a liver. Brian, 14 people turned down a partial liver. You know, if you get a full liver, it's like, you know, you take out the old battery, you put it in. When you split a liver, there's all kind of things that they got to do, you know, put this here, put that there, you know. And my wife and I were talking, I said, I wonder how many, you know, of those 14 people are alive today because they turned down a partial liver, you know. How long from the time you walked out of the hospital till you were back performing? It was six months. Uh, my doctor uh, at, at Jefferson, his name was Cataldo Doria, beautiful Italian man. And uh, he didn't know who I was. You know, he came over from Italy. He was originally, you know, studied in Pittsburgh for three years. And then, thank God, they moved him here to Philadelphia, Jefferson. And he told his wife, he said, uh, and he spoke broken. He said, I don't know. Everybody talking about uh, I'm uh, doing a surgery on the Babaradel, <laughs> you know. And the wife said, you don't know him? He's a famous singer. Yada, yada, yada. So we do the surgery, and everything's wonderful. And um, I had heard from different doctors, you know, be prepared. So a month, maybe possibly, you know, you got to stay in the hospital after the surgery. And Dr. Cataldo, <laughs> he came in, he said, uh, this was about 10 days after the surgery, Brian. He said, the Bob. I think you're going to go home in maybe three, four days. Surgery was uh, the 10th. I was home the 19th. I was home nine days after the surgery. And then, uh, I'm sorry, too. Uh, uh, I didn't know what was going to happen. I had tubes down here. You know, how are the chops? You know, what, what's going to come out? So I called, you know, three guys. Uh, uh, Craig Thomas on bass, Alan Slutsky, who's the co-writer of the book, and a guy by the name of Joe Nero to come over to my house. I just wanted to do tunes. You know, like Shadow of Your Smile, I've Got You Under My Skin, Wild One, Volati, Sway, you know, all of the hit. And it was like coming out like, okay, but not really. 
And, and I turned to Craig Thomas, the bass player. I said, Craig, truthfully, man, what does it sound like? I don't know, man. Sounds like Bobby Rydell to me, man. You know. And um, then Lucy Osi, who I talked about earlier in the interview, uh, who has the 18-piece band at the Clef Club, I said, Lou, could you put the band together? I want to try and do my show. This was about maybe four months after the surgery. And he got the whole band, trumpets, bones, reeds, you know, and my drummer, I flew him in. He's originally from Broomall, but I flew him in from Chicago. I said, I want to do the show. And pow, everything came out. I went, Jesus, man. Like, I'm back. And six months after the double transplant, I was in Vegas. Now, before we run out of time, I have to ask you to tell about meeting Frank Sinatra and what relationship you oh, had with yeah. him. That was at the Copa in New York City, and my dad and my manager, Frankie Day, uh, were at the club before me. Uh, I was doing German TV. Carmine, one of the waiters at the club, you know, I walk in, and uh, I, it was in the wintertime. I gave him an you know, overcoat, and he says, uh, he says to me, uh, Bob, you want to sit with Frank? And I think he's talking about my manager, Frankie Day. I said, no, Carmine, you know. Don't worry about it. I'll just go down and join, you know, my, my manager, my dad. He said, no, Bobby, Frank. I said, Frank. He was in the club to watch a guy by the name of Joey Lewis. He was a comedian that Sinatra made a movie called The Joker is Wild. It was Joey Lewis's life. I said, no, Carmine. I said, I'm 19 years old. I said, I'll sit with, you know, my dad and my manager. The end of the show... Joey Lewis introduces him. The old man walks out. I said, that's it. I'll never meet him. The end of the story, you know. Go upstairs to the lounge to say goodnight to Jules Padel, who was like the front of the Copa, you know, back then. And through the kitchen doors comes Sinatra. I said, Uncle Julie, I said, all I want to do is shake his hand. And Jules Padel talked like this, you want me a Frank? I said, yeah, yeah. So he's sitting with Sammy Kahn, Jimmy Van Usen, Richard Conti, and Joe DiMaggio. And Frank is sitting like this. We're coming this way. And Podell, bang, he hits Sinatra on the shoulder. I went, oh, Jesus Christ. He said, Frank, I want you to meet the kid. Sinatra stood up them blue eyes. And I said, how you doing, Robert? Call me Robert. I said, fine, Mr. Sinatra, how are you? He says, I'm wonderful. Would you care to join us? I said, be my pleasure. And I sat there, Brian, just, and Mr. S turned to me about, you know, a minute later. He said, uh, what do you drink, Robert? I said, Coke. <laughs> Figure if I said scotch and water, he'd smack me in the face. But uh, I've been in his company quite a few times, and he's always been marvelous, absolutely. And matter of fact, God rest his soul as well, Frank Jr. And I went up to Frank Jr. I said, Frank, thank you ever so much, meaning Jr., you know, for the nice things you said about me. He says, what are you talking about? Well, you know, you're one, I'm one of your favorites. He said, I never said that, meaning Frank Jr. I said, yeah, I've read about him. <laughs> he said, no. He said, that was my father. <laughs> so, oh, well... Excuse me, Frank, but it's even, you know, better yet. <laughs> but, uh, 
Yeah, he, he was, you know, every time I was in his company, Brian, he was always, you know, just tremendous to me, you know, really. And um, I remember we were sitting in Vegas. And uh, matter of fact, Joey Lewis, he was married to Mia Farrow at the time. And uh, he said, uh, Robert, I'd like you to record for my label. This is when he started Reprise. I said, what time do you want me there? How much do I owe you? <laughs> and I signed, nothing really ever happened with it, but uh, I mean, just for the old man to say, I like you to be on the label, yeah. We just have a couple minutes left, so yes, now you, you perform regularly with Frankie Avalon and Oh yeah, we do. Well, like I said, we started the show back in 1985, and it's still now, it's 2016, we're still doing the show. So we do, like, I, I would say, you know, 20, 25 dates out of the year, but then again, I, you know, I do my own thing. Like I talked about earlier at the Golden Nugget with the 17-piece band to do the American Songbook. So uh, things are really going good. The book is doing wonderful, and uh, I, if I may, I'd like to thank the people at Doylestown. Uh, we, we did a book signing, you know, I, this is this will be on, I think, Sunday night, so this was a, maybe four or five days, you know, prior, and uh, they were absolutely wonderful, you know, but uh, thank you for the time, Brian. Anything you'd do differently at this point? I would stop drinking. <laughs> I wouldn't have drank as much, and I don't know about the, you, you know what the, the, the toughest thing about it, you know, yeah, if if I'm gonna have, I don't drink anymore. I mean, to compare it to it, you know, if, if my wife and I go out to dinner, maybe I'll have a glass of Chardonnay, you know, and that's it. Prior to dinner, and, and it's over. Smoking, Whew. harder to stop smoking than drinking. And you I don't know still, what that. Means. And you can still <laughs> sing. <laughs> yeah, the chops are really good. Chops, chops really sound really, really good. Yeah. Well, we're out of time. We've been speaking with Bobby Rydell. He is the author of this book, his story, Teen Idol on the Rocks. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you, Brian, for the time. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.